0: Hello and welcome to Semi Serious Science, the podcast where we chat to people of a scientific persuasion about their life, their work, and their passion, all over a couple of beers or coffee. I'm Stilly
1: and I'm Lou, and we're two PhD students in the Semi Lab, which is a collaborative lab which utilizes the merger of multiple disciplines to study the interaction between cells, materials, and proteins. All of this to gain a fundamental insight into engineering cell behavior.
0: Today's guest is an epigenetic plant PhD student who has utilized her own genes, which aren't always on her side, to achieve incredible heights and push herself to achieve almost everything she sets her mind to. She is an accomplished international presenter and an award-winning science communicator, as well as photographer and mother of 30 different houseplants. Please welcome Emily May.
2: The 30 houseplants are now closer to 50. They just
1: keep (laughs) multiplying. (laughs) I've been propagating this one painted nettle that Stilly got me for Secret Santa. And I now have close to like ten of these painted nettles everywhere. Yeah,
2: it's quite addictive, isn't it? Um, I'm surrounded. I, my work from home desk is
1: surrounded.
0: Oh my god.
1: Oh, but that actually <laughs> looks phenomenal. I can't complain. <laughs>
0: well, actually, because I was bored during lockdown, I did this um, one day in my life during lockdown on Instagram, posing like a little question if they have to a plant scientist like yourself. And the number one question was what some tips to take care of my house plants. Do you have any tips
2: my number one tip is now that we're all at home is to just stop watering them i know that you're at home and you really love them and you want them to feel loved but like stop it (laughs) (laughs) they don't need that much love um they've been fine with you not paying them that much attention so far just because you're home all the time doesn't mean you need to water them all the time (laughs) my watering regime is if i have water in the In my glass at the end of, well, when I wake up in the morning that I've drunk throughout the night. It gets dumped unceremoniously into one of the plants, and that's it. That's how I do it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I found neglect works wonderfully for all my plants, particularly orchids. Orchids just love to be neglected. (laughs) I've never had any luck with orchids ever. You obviously love them too much.
2: Yeah, they can sense fear. I think.
0: (laughs) Yeah, my 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 girlfriend just loves her plants. Like I myself don't really have any. Like Lou gave me one, and (sighs) like it ended up being a little crunchy little mess. so just one. <laughs> I, I forgot about it completely. <laughs> it was one of my babies
1: as well. I've been
2: so worried about all the lovely plants that we have in the plant department. Um, there's just like our pet plants that people give to the building when they leave, but I think they're being taken care of. um Yeah,
1: because you work in the Bauer Building, and that's just like it's probably the nicest building on campus. I don't know if we were allowed to say that. I think we are. Yeah, it's the nicest building. It is. Oh, I feel like we should mention it's a happy belated birthday. You've had a lockdown oh, birthday, didn't you. you? I did. I actually had quite a nice day, all things
2: considered. I've never lived by myself before, and both my flatmates had to go back down to England so it's just me and my pet fish and the postman the postman always is delivering all of this random stuff I've ordered off the internet yeah he's my other flatmate now basically but yeah it, it was uh it was an experience I'll put it that way yeah.
0: <laughs> what's the most random thing you ordered off the internet during this lockdown
2: oh my god oh I ordered, let me think, because there have been some very bizarre things. I've ordered air drying clay so I can make a candle holder for a candle I bought also during lockdown. (laughs) Um, I don't even use candles that often because I'm terrified of burning the house down. What else? Uh, I got a plastic spatula that I didn't check wasn't heatproof and then melted all over a new pan. (gasps) No. Is the new pan
1: also a lockdown purchase? yes
2: (laughs) yes <laughs> everyone's like oh you must be saving so much money and i'm like no like Mm-mm.
1: no i'm I'm buying my feelings back
2: oh same like <laughs> yeah i think this little mug was a birthday present to myself i'm quite <laughs> attached to already oh i love this it. this plant actually got delivered d- today while i was on a zoom <laughs> meeting um with my boss so i had to really interrupt our zoom meeting to take delivery of this giant plant. <laughs> it, it sheds little leaves quite easily. So once this is all done, I can give you a propagated version. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, it's gorgeous. What kind of, do you
2: know kind of plant it is? It's called a sedum burrito. Ooh. Burrito, I think. I was having this conversation with my boyfriend earlier about the etymology of bur- like burrito. And burro is donkey in mm-hmm. Spanish. And ito means like little or tiny. He... Is convinced it's called a burrito because like it carries a lot of stuff like a donkey does. And like oh, the burrito interesting. is packed with all of these things. Or a burrito looks like the pack you get on the side of a donkey when it's carrying stuff. Um and I think that's really cute. <laughs> I like that, yeah, I that. So I'm there for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, this is called a donkey's tail. Uh, succulent,
1: sometimes.
0: <laughs> nice. Oh wow, that's interesting. Have you actually taken part in any other of these lockdown trends? Like myself, I feel like I've. Steely
1: done every single one of the lockdown trends. Oh, which ones have you done? I, I've,
0: I've done everything. <laughs> Guilty though. I mean, so <laughs> my girlfriend had had started doing sourdough like a while back, but now that like it's like so in to do sourdough, I feel like. I mean, she did it before it was cool, but it's now cool. I think I've jumped on the train. <laughs> I've done like whole sourdough tutorials <laughs> now on Instagram.
2: I need to follow you on Instagram, but um, I've been pickling a lot of things, Ooh, getting really nice. into pickling. I think that counts as five. That's so cool. <laughs> Just like I, I signed up for a veg box.
0: But do you so do the rooted anything, one? Does-
1: Yeah, I do. Yeah,
0: us too. Us too, yeah. It's,
1: it's so good. That's six points for the lockdown (laughs) fever to both of you.
2: (laughs) But if if I don't know what to do with it, it's just pickle it, stick it in a jar, leave it to ferment in a cupboard for a while, check back in a month. I can't even think of what other trends there have been so far. I'm sure there's been thousands, but they've just like zoomed right over my head zoomed
1: oh right yeah zoomed. that's gotta be a trend <laughs> that's true
0: um, you're quite a, a wonderful vegan cook actually have you been have you been working on any on any vegan cooking these uh days during lockdown
2: turns out not going outside has made me crave eggs to the point where i've had to stop being vegan so i can eat the eggs and then i realized it's probably because they've got some vitamin d in them and i've i've actually spoken to a lot of my other vegan friends as well and they're all just like no we're eating cheese we're eating eggs like we've got to get nice little pleasures where we can um on sunday i got distracted and made two kilograms of gnocchi just like to the point where i had to invite people to my close where i could do a safe gnocchi delivery for them and i had like four different people contact me through instagram taking me up on my gnocchi offer that is incredible that's That's great great, though (laughs) i did exchange some gnocchi for a tomato plant So I'm quite excited to see if that actually works. But yeah, I've been doing a lot of cooking. And funnily enough, I discovered since I've been incorporating like eggs and sort of local cheeses and stuff like that into my diet, my dislocation rate has just disappeared. Like I'm not having any seizures or as many dislocations anymore so I'm just gonna stick with them the eggs and the dairy for now ethical like brain nightmares aside about how guilty I feel <laughs> over it but at the same time like better's nice
0: <laughs> I, I mean I know of <laughs> yeah. course
2: yeah
0: <laughs> it's, that is the best thing for fun fact actually Greece is actually the number one cheese consuming country in the world because we eat so much better really? cheese yeah.
2: Oh, but feta is
1: yeah. so good. But what about Switzerland?
0: Well, they're not the oh. fir- they're, they're not but, the number one most but, cheese consuming but... country in the world. I don't know where they are. <laughs>
1: what? I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find some kind of cheese definition that disqualifies feta. Just to put Switzerland back on top. Is like feta, like a sheep's milk or something. Would it have to be like cow-based cheeses? Yeah. Is it probably fermented or separated, like the <laughs> thirds and stuff?
0: I mean, feta <laughs> is a sheep or goat's base. Like originally, uh, okay. originally, it's sheep cheese, uh, sheep milk cheese. Mm. Yeah, that doesn't
1: count. <laughs> oh, Sorry, does does not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh. I
1: um actually
2: one one thing that's made me realize I'm getting really bad lab withdrawals is that. I've started making like ten percent salt solutions to preserve my feta in. I've started dating and labeling all of the stuff in my fridge with masking tape and a sharpie, like it's gonna go in some magical autoclave somewhere.
0: So Emily, you're actually science communic. you communicate your science through Twitter, through various social media, and actually your, the blog you have as well. What I found very interesting. Uh, is that like during one of your blog posts what you say is that it is vital for researchers to engage and excite and enlighten the public however many researchers think they're not good enough and this is very true because like on a personal level i think that i'm i'm very self-conscious about sharing my ideas because i think that i'm you know i'm i'm fearful of being criticized or i'm fearful of being judged all the time and-
2: We're not very confident people for the most part in discussing our ideas because in science, we kind of have, or in academia in general, we are never the expert. There's always someone who knows a tiny little bit more about this one thing that we want to talk about and we always tell ourselves well i'm not qualified to speak on it because my supervisor their boss they know way more about this than i do so i can't talk about it at all and i remember going to a science in the media seminar run by a charity called sense about science and they said in order to be able to explain science to the public so that everyone understands it you need to explain it like you're explaining it to an eight-year-old No offence meant to the general public, but if you're explaining it to an eight-year-old, everyone can basically understand it. And... It's really difficult to believe that you know enough to talk to this imaginary eight-year-old because even though you know that you know enough, it can be quite anxiety-inducing to be put on the spot like that and be worried about saying the wrong thing or if someone else knows more, someone else might explain it better. But it's, from my perspective, it's just sort of about getting up there and accepting that you might not always say the perfect thing that you've got sort of practiced in your head that you might not, you know... You might not live up to your own expectations, but you are an expert in your own right. If you even get to be doing a PhD or even a master's, you're still an expert in your little field, and that's really important. And I think hearing those words at one point, I was like, oh, okay. So I guess I can I guess I can talk about this stuff. And actually, I had a lot of these very similar feelings because every every Monday on my Instagram, I do a weird biology question and answer session. So people send me their questions over 24 hours and without googling them I have to try and answer them in 15 seconds or less and I probably get about 50 oh. questions a week just they're from my friends they're from my followers they're from my friends kids so I have to make sure I don't swear it can be anything from sort of like I've been getting all sorts of questions like why do our eyes have different colors is chlorophyll required for photosynthesis? One, you can cut this out if you want, was do we inherit sexual technique from our parents? And I was like, oh. <laughs> I don't want to know what this person's been Googling to come up with this question. But here we are. I did say weird as you wanted and it would be no judgment zone, but there was some judgment.
1: <laughs> and with your like epigenetic plants background, would you say that there is some inherited characteristics that way? Something, something trauma is inherited epigenetically at some degree. So, I mean, if you were bad enough.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, quite possibly. We may never know. I don't want to even begin to think about the sort of experiment, the academic experiment you would have to set up and um, the ethics like <laughs> panels you'd have to take that through in order to <laughs> answer that question or like under what gene yeah like <laughs> i
0: mean <laughs> the hardest thing would be like
1: when it. they ask you why you're just like
0: <laughs> i mean i don't know if you've seen this documentary on netflix um about three complete straight or three strange or something like that about the twins the triplet study that was um
1: <gasps> oh yes yeah. sorry sorry i i yeah. liked it
0: yeah which it was it was crazy man like it was crazy like the I mean, for people that don't know you should definitely watch no it.
2: spoilers no, spoilers. Oh, yeah, no spoilers. spoilers okay fine it's it's on my list it's on my list to watch mm. um oh. with some friends over zoom and um, oh. still haven't watched it um but I, this sort of stuff is really interesting so it's yeah, this really like nature really versus excited. nurture
0: kind of is the, kind of debate
2: mm-hmm. yeah
0: but yeah And you also mentioned like during that blog post, the same blog post, that there is people like that talk about climate change and GM food or also vaccinations. And sometimes the media portrays it as a one to one debate. However, it is often the case that there is this like lack of proportionality because in or proportional representation, because in reality, it's actually a thousand or more to one Rather than a one-to-one debate, and why do you think uh, the media uh, portrays it as such a lopsided debate? Or do you think that scientists are not comfortable enough in sharing their opinion, or that
2: for a start, it's a lot easier to fit two people on a breakfast news sofa than it is to fit nine hundred and ninety-nine people <laughs> for one argument and the one guy denying it. Yeah. Um, there's a very good John Oliver sketch that a professor at my undergraduate university showed me during a climate change module in my final year. And it's what really solidified this idea of how biased and uneven the media presents scientific arguments is that you have one climate change denier and then you have a scientist. And that just looks like, it looks like 50-50 represent re- re- representation whereas then 99 other scientists come into this room in the sketch basically waving their papers around being like shut up and listen so it makes for good TV as well we kind of have to remember that television isn't just there to like inform us it also has to be entertaining and it's going to be a lot more interesting watching the nutcase guy with the tinfoil hat on his head screaming at a scientist and but it's going to be entertaining, even if it's not true. We're all probably going to watch it on YouTube clips for years uh, to come. Touching
1: back on something you said before. So I've been reading Carl Sagan's, I'm pretty sure it's Candle in the Dark, but when you listen back to this, it will have the right title in. He talks about, from his point of view, pseudoscience prevalence in like the population and why it is so prevalent. And if Kind of touches back on what you were saying about how scientists, and I think it's partially the doubt with which we communicate, but I wonder if it's, if we're not making it sound wonderful. And like when you hear theories of Atlantis, you know, it's, it's incredible, but you know, there's just, there's equally as incredible things. How the cells decide which one's going to be a root hair and which one's not. Blew my mind
2: when I first learned it in undergrad. I loved it. Yeah. I think pseudoscience is so prevalent because it's normally more fun. It tells a more fun story. Like it's a lot more fun to believe that the earth is flat because it tells a more impressive and more interesting narrative. There's plot twists. Like the end of the earth is just Antarctica and it's a big ice sheet. That's more interesting to some people. Than going like oh so we're just a giant ball of rock floating through space with no purpose time or place yeah. we just are but it's a lot more fun to believe conspiracy theories which is why people do it with such ease I think because you know like even I spend half of my time on Reddit reading them just to see like to try and put myself in these people's shoes to be like okay, so why do you believe this? And for us, because we are trained scientists, it's so easy to apply the scientific method to everything, which mm-hmm. is sort of like, okay, most people in the outside world take a, so prove me wrong. No, sorry. They take a sort of prove me right. Wait, am I getting this we the wrong We prove ourselves around? wrong. Yeah, we want to be wrong. Yeah. Other people don't want to be wrong at all. Like it's scientific method to want to be wrong because yeah. it's more rigorous. Mm-hmm. Whereas everyone else is like, no, I'm right. I read it on the internet, it's right, Which of course it's is another cornerstone to
1: the scientist's crippling <laughs> confidence is that we're constantly <laughs> going around waiting for someone else to disprove us or for us to disprove ourselves.
0: Yeah, and actually-
1: Absolutely. A postdoc
2: in my lab has a post-it note on their bench saying science progresses funeral by funeral. And it's true because you do have to bury your really good ideas to move forward. And I used to keep a book of failed ideas in the lab but eventually i had so many i thought this is just (laughs) depressing but my my supervisor has always made a really good point that we should there should be a journal of failed experiments there should be to stop people from sinking thousands of research pounds into unanswerable questions that someone else has already tried but it wasn't publishable so they never published it Yeah. And people just keep making the same errors over and over again, because there's no evidence that it didn't work before. And I think that's quite that's quite a unique problem in science at the moment, especially when we're working with like really big sequencing experiments and stuff like that. It's quite easy to it's expensive, but it's quite easy to just sequence something and see what you get. But because there's no database of failed experiments where you didn't find anything, you didn't even prove or disprove your hypothesis, it just was. There are lots of scientists trying to answer these impossible questions and they don't know that You're it can be are going to love done. our guess
1: the impact factor round at the end, because I think we may have found that journal, although it is incredibly <laughs> obscure and the impact factor is not great. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, science is a journey to be for sure. And while talking about (laughs) journeys, something that I think is, is really cool. And like that I was really fascinated by actually, and when I was researching for this for this podcast interview, you're very open about your journey from realizing that you are Disabled to adapting to lab environments and working with your disability, and then at the end also saying that your disability is who you are. And I love the quote you put uh, there. But like Stephen, you said that Stephen Hawking was not bound to his wheelchair. His wheelchair was his freedom, Uh, just like your crutches. Stephen Hawking did not suffer from ALS; he lived with it, just like you said that you don't suffer from Eller's Danlos, but you live with it. And what you actually, what you suffer from. Is that able body that able bodied nonsense that society is building against you? Stephen Hawking is not inspirational for living his life in a way different to able bodies, but he's inspira- inspirational because of his groundbreaking research. And I think that's amazing. That's remarkable, to be honest. And, um, and it's amazing how you really write about this, this journey of yours from like, the realization to the fact that you really understood who you are and that, and that you're like, really working with it. But I was wondering, given that like, you went through this process of understanding this, what would be your advice to people that might be very you know, devastated by something happening to them and causing a disability that they're not really used to? and find it hard to accept like that this is actually good or like that's actually defining for them?
1: Yeah,
2: I think it's really difficult. And you kind of go through the seven stages of grief. It's like denial, anger, bargaining. Um, and that's kind of what I went through because for a long time, especially during my undergrad, I was just completely living in denial of what was happening. I was working four jobs whilst doing my undergraduate dissertation. You know, I thought, well, if I never stop, I never have to accept what's going on with me, you know? And then I moved up to Glasgow and suddenly became very aware of my reality. And then when Both of my legs stopped working after a very poorly timed Zumba class. I was like, right, this is my reality and I need to find a way to kind of make it. I need to make it rather than it make me in a way, which sounds funny considering I staunchly have the stance that I am disabled and it is very much so a part of me. But at the same time, I had to own it and I had to make it what I wanted it to be. I would say in terms of advice it's a very personal thing to develop a disease to develop a mental health condition to develop any kind of thing with your body that ultimately changes how you have to be in the world and that could be how you have to live if you have to have a carer if you have to suddenly start going to the hospital if you have to take medication like even accepting that you have to take a medication for your mental health can be really really difficult and i think i know a lot of people that have been in that situation where they they've realized there's a problem And it could be, you know, you've got really bad anxiety or in my case, you've realized that your legs will not stop dislocating and you kind of have to go through that bargaining process of what happens if I do something about it? What will happen to me if I don't do something about it? I love to plan. So I remember at some points deciding whether or not I was going to take what sort of treatment I wanted to go down, what treatment route and writing up a big plan of pros and cons of all of it. And at the end of the day, All it came down to was accepting sort of like the the rate determining step of this was me accepting that this was my new reality. Sort of trying to become indifferent to the fact that this is my reality. I still struggle with it sometimes. Like right now, I keep dreaming about going for a run. If I go for a run, I will end up in hospital. But I can't explain to you how much I want to go for a run right now. (laughs) It's so strange. You still, you're still like... And even though i'm fully acceptance that this is my lot in life and i probably won't ever like go on that really long bike ride that i wanted to it doesn't stop you from wanting to do it but you just have to learn to accept that you can't so really it's just a, a big old exercise in acceptance which mm-hmm. sounds very buddhist but it's definitely taught me to be a lot more patient and kind to myself because mm-hmm. that's not something i was ever much of before but i would definitely say sort of developing something that changes how you have to live your life it definitely makes you reassess your relationship with yourself because i've definitely had to learn that i come first sometimes i have to say i have to be really strict with my boundaries if like my friends want me to go to the pub and i can feel there might be a seizure coming on i can't go to the pub i really really want to and I know if I do go I'll have a seizure in the middle of in deep and then it'll all get really dramatic and nobody wants that but I still really want to go Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. so if anything it's, it's it really teaches you about valuing yourself and not pushing yourself too hard I'm really guilty of it sometimes I think everyone is but you also have to learn to be very kind to yourself like yesterday I was in bed with a migraine basically all day and I couldn't do the washing up I couldn't Water plants. I couldn't do anything I wanted to do, and then normally old Emily would have gotten super frustrated and annoyed that I can't even do these like quote unquote basic human things. But instead, I just had to lie there and be like, "Yep, do it tomorrow. It's fine." Um, that was a really
0: long monologue. I think that's a really good advice yeah. for everyone.
2: Yeah, and I think it's it's really made me reconsider and be quite brutal about who I want in my life, who can I trust with me i'm pretty resilient but at the end of the day if i trip over a stone that's me in hospital (laughs) who who do i want surrounding me that will take me to the hospital and not tell me off for being stupid for not seeing the stone in the first place (laughs) but i remember when i got my adhd diagnosis during my phd i remember telling some people and they were like no we don't see it in you you can't have it and i'm thinking Okay, how does this like make me feel just because i'm really good at masking my various neurodiversities (laughs) okay like it was it was quite it's quite a shock if i'm having a really bad mental health day my body might feel fine but it's the mental health that's going to stop me from getting into work Mm -hmm. but if i'm depressed in the lab that's fine. It's not a health and safety problem for anyone else.
0: <laughs> yeah, if I'm
2: dislocating yeah. all over the place in the lab, that's when it's really bad and I shouldn't be there. And that's when I think it... I'm really stubborn. I want to be in the lab all the time. But I had to be really stubborn and honest with myself about when is it going to become a risk for other people,
0: you know? What, what is really baffling to me in, like, these kind of situations is just the fact that, like, how... Even with physical diagnosis, which, like, you know, supposedly they are the more obvious ones but even and that's why a lot of people I guess tend to and wrongly so but still tend to be like you know it's this is a physical thing I can like see it happening like they believe it more but even with the very physical ones it's like a lot of people don't get their diagnosis after until like maybe 10 years after they start start actually feeling their symptoms and that's crazy to me like how is it possible that like somebody that is like keeps complaining about I don't know their back is like diagnosed with some sort of like joint issue or some sort of cartilage issue like 10 years after they started complaining about that I
2: think yeah it's I mean for me I think there's from my perspective I think there was probably a little bit of medical sexism going on in my early diagnostics team because I was always complaining as a baby I was a really fussy baby I was a nightmare I was a nightmare toddler I was a nightmare like full stop Everyone just thought I was a fussy kid where really I was crying all the time because I was all dislocated and gross. And then when I went to... The doctors it was like oh it's growing pains oh no i can't actually dislocate a rib it's this kind of it was so confusing to them that a apparently healthy young person could have all these things wrong with them that they just didn't want to entertain it and it was actually my dentist in the end who was like wow your jaw is beyond screwed up does the rest of your body do this and i was like oh yeah what that's totally normal and she was like no go see this rheumatologist and it took a compassionate dentist of all people to finally realise what was going on. And I think a lot of this also comes to the fact that rare diseases aren't that charismatic. Like, sometimes you can get a cool, weird rare disease that might have, like, a super interesting phenotype. But for the most part, I look normal. There's no reason to believe I'm not fine That's why there's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on with a doctor or any medical professional when you show up and you're like, hi, this is happening to me um, and they just can't believe it. And what makes things more difficult, at least for my condition, is there's no genetic test yet. So to get diagnosed, you have to look at the family tree and the phenotype you're showing, which can be really subtle in some people's cases. But yeah, it was kind of that lack of understanding that pushed me into genetics in the first place, because I started my undergraduate degree determined to find out what on earth my body was doing. I got really distracted by (laughs) plants instead. But, you know, I first dislocated my ankle while dancing when I was nine, and it took me until 21 to get a diagnosis. The more I share that with people, the more everyone else is like, yeah, same thing happened to me too. And I think it might, a lot of it's because um, that there are a lot of studies about how women's pain isn't perceived in the same way as male pain. But equally, I've had the husband of a colleague told that he doesn't have a condition because it predominantly is in women and he's like well I clearly have it and they're like well you're clearly not a woman mm. so he had to go get a private diagnosis so there's a lot of medical sexism at play I think and a lot of like under education I've had some of my friends who are doctors say I am the only reason they know about my condition because I talk about it all the time I have had some friends who are doctors say oh yeah we actually had a lecture on this but navigating the world of like a rare and chronic illness from a medical perspective I can imagine it's very difficult.
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting as well because like I was also watching this documentary and reading about this. Like there is there seems to be a, a diagnosis of like I don't know why like I guess like a diagnosis of of some diseases more than others or like even Mm -hmm. physical and mental for example ADHD when I was a kid in Germany every every kid around me seemed to be diagnosed with ADHD and like they even diagnosed me like they wanted to put me on ADHD medication and like after going to Mm -hmm. multiple doctors they were like no it's not necessary like he's just a kid you know like he doesn't need ADHD medication (laughs) um and uh and like also there is a lot of people taking adhd medication to study like Adderall or like uh, an add medication uh there there seems to be a sort of almost like not i don't know for lack of a better word like using it to to give people medication than like other people just taking it to be able to study like more like what what's your opinion on that whole Uh thing
2: It really, really upsets me because I cannot take ADHD medication because of my heart condition. So quick disease lesson, Ehlers-Danlos has thousands of random side effects or like secondary diseases that it causes. Um, One of them is called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is a failure of the automatic or autonomic nervous system to basically control Uh, vasoconstriction how fast your blood vessels constrict when you stand up so basically i'm allergic to gravity because when i stand up my body's like cool and then doesn't constrict the blood vessels in my legs all my blood goes to my feet and then my heart rate skyrockets up to like 200 beats per minute if i'm not taking my medication so that's annoying. Also, if you have EDS, you're 19 times more likely to have uh, an anxiety disorder, be on the autism spectrum and have ADHD. So, <laughs> it's kind of a perfect storm. So, I despite having ADHD cannot be medicated for it. And it gets very frustrating when I see people who just want to study. They just want to concentrate really hard and stuff and I'm thinking like as much as I think my life is great, There are so many areas that I know could be vastly improved if I was just able to bloody concentrate and actually sit down and do something. My thesis is a very good example of this. And to see people seem to somehow have free and easy access to medication that might genuinely be able to help me thrive is quite annoying. Because... I mean, I could not exist outside of an academic environment. I can't deal with times when to be in work. I need to show up when I want to show up. I can't, I, I'm really bad at being managed. And I know if I had access to this medication, it would make everything. I would be, probably be able to fit into a lot more different job environments. And I would probably be able to increase my career opportunities tenfold after this. I've had a lot of people say, well, you can't have ADHD if you're doing a PhD. And I'm like, oh, actually, it's great because I get to do whatever I want whenever I want to do it. (laughs) So for me, that's my perfect environment is just being told to go off and have fun and let me know what you find out. And that's great for me. And it scares me a bit that when I have to go out into the big, wide, scary world of real... How well I'll do or not, because I stuck in academia up until the PhD level. I don't know if I'll stick around after, just because it's a safe environment for the way my brain works. And to see other people who don't need the medication I could have using it for fun or using it because they have a deadline is a little bit like a kick in the teeth. Yeah. But it, just, it uh, seems
1: really unfair given that, it, you know, it's in a, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but to even the playing field is to give you an equal opportunity. And yet, people who don't need it are using it to get even further ahead, despite the privilege that they might already have.
2: Yes, um, that's a really that's a really good way to put it. <laughs> <No. laughs> um, but you know, like it's it's a blessing and a curse. I if I. Like I get hyper-focused quite easily. I've learned to weaponize it for want of a better term. If I've got something that needs doing and I want to do it, it'll get done. It'll get done four times. It'll get done so well. If, that, if I have something to do that I don't really want to do, good luck. Like maybe it'll never happen. <laughs> like half of, it's like, I always used to get like quite good grades at school, but never the best because I'd always be super invested in the beginning of an essay. Write the whole like three quarters of it to a star level in the first like day of getting it set then i'd get bored of it come back to it the day before it's due and just kind of write <laughs> da, 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 the end as the conclusion and then get like an f for that portion so all just kind of leveled out and you know the same thing is happening to the way i'm approaching my thesis at the <laughs> um
1: so we'll, we'll see what happens. That's very relatable. <laughs> so, so obviously we, we all have to describe our, our very human experiences and we've all given the same vocabulary to describe that human experience. How do you deal with that? So, I mean, even that was very relatable to me, but I'm sure I don't have ADHD. So how do you deal with the fact that, you know, it's so easy for people to probably think that they're or at least physical or sorry, mental, things like that. You know, it's very easy to kind of tell yourself that you maybe have it or to, to distinguish yourself through language. And I mean, I was, I
2: didn't even believe that I had it for years. I was just, I just thought I was an asshole kid, but it was fine because my grades were fine. I was, you know, disruptive. I was constantly kicked out of class. Constantly on detention, constantly forgetting everything. But it was fine because my grades were like, fine. <laughs> you know, it was until I have an amazing mental health advisor who I see once a week. Well, we have a phone call once a week at the moment. And her <laughs> her job is to basically keep me on the straight and narrow in my PhD to help me navigate all of the funky mental health stuff that comes up when you're doing it. And she first pointed out, like, hmm, <laughs> seems kind of like it all adds up. Um
0: T- talking about like disability services, I think I came across this video video about this guy that was trying to get around new york city and in a wheelchair it was just crazy how you know he was wanting to like see the sights but only like a certain amount of station actually had an access point for him to actually be able to go in and like come out and then he needed to like plan his trip to the closest station that actually had wheelchair access and it's like and other things that we just take for granted like even like going through the gates of the metro and everything it's very difficult and even in science i think it can happen a lot of conferences probably don't take that into account Um.
2: (laughs) yes one of my arguments is that you should always hire a disabled person because they're excellent planners (laughs) we know exactly what to do how to do it when to get there because we have to it's like if i'm having a bad day i need to know an hour in advance if i'm going to take the bus then the subway or just take the bus because if i can't get down the subway steps to get to work then guess i'm just not going to get into work that day you know or because the subway that's great it takes half the time or i can sit on the number three bus going through the whole city center until i get to work that will take an hour compared to the 20 minutes Yeah, definitely. It's something that I never really considered and a lot of people don't consider because they don't have to. And it's not their fault for the most part. I don't ever want to come across as accusatory. Um, a lot of people never have to think about it. It's like once I asked for a chair at a conference networking event and I was replied with, why? I was like, okay, we've got some work to do here. And I, like, I without wanting to A, disclose my condition or B, go into the entire like social, political, disability awareness spiel. I just had to be like, oh, I want to sit down. <laughs> and you have to phrase it as a, I would like rather than a, I desperately need Um, to keep people, you know, you don't want to introduce too much stress to this poor person but um yeah so that like like you mentioned with the conferences um it's (sighs) most academics have never had to think about accessibility mostly because until now the majority of academics have been able-bodied because there haven't been the schemes or the awareness in place to make academia accessible for people like me it just it didn't happen. And you know, the same can probably be said across the rest of the world to a degree. But it's really important that we all kind of figure this out sooner rather than later, because like whilst we have the Athena SWAN initiative um, for gender equality, which is great, we don't have a similar one for disability. You can have like a disability champion award or like gold investor in people award or something, but that doesn't necessarily translate down into what people do at a human level, just because you have it
1: at an institute level. And they don't have it, you know, in the signature of all the emails like they do with the Athena SWAN too. That's that's everywhere in the university. (laughs)
2: oh yeah and like and I do think the Athena Swan is a really good model to follow the thing is is that I want more and I want it now the Athena Swan is fantastic because it's dealt with one of the first massive equalities and now I'm like a hungry kid at a dinner table I want every other equality done now I want it done yesterday but I have to remind myself that like especially in big institutions it's a very slow process to be able to slowly enact these changes and make it part of the research culture rather than just having me snapping at people over emails for not offering chairs at a lunch it has to become ingrained in how an institution works and functions to the point where people don't question it because i feel like at the moment our institute especially is really good i have never once had a single issue at all for the, for the most part, but then you suddenly go to conferences and you're <laughs> yeah. like, huh, okay, <laughs> we've got to do. I work think it's like
1: do. we're in like a little dissonant section where we're, it is, although it's not quite quick enough, it is changing a lot, especially within our lifetime. And we've gone to the point where we don't consider some things to where mm-hmm. you're expected to consider it. And where I think it lets us down, especially in terms of disability, is that uh, able-bodied people feel like they're supposed to know what disabled people need. And I think they, they forget that you're allowed to ask. You're allowed to ask and you should ask what is required and what is needed.
2: Yes, absolutely. And I think this is, this is a big problem is that disability is a massive spectrum. There are a thousand and one ways to be disabled. And that's not an easy thing to know how to deal with at an institutional level Like, I know what my needs are, but I definitely don't know what my deaf friend's needs are as well as I could do, because I can't speak sign language as well as I want to. So there's that, there's a communication barrier that I hadn't previously considered, because I'm lucky enough to be able to verbalise myself and I can hear what people are saying. Whereas she can get up and downstairs fine and I can't, you know what I mean? Like, that's just very disparate. It's really difficult and... I have to sometimes make sure I don't get defensive when people ask me how to help because I'm like, oh no, I'm a, I'm a big, strong person. I can, I'm completely self-sufficient. And then I'm like, oh no, this is coming from a a nice place. Because sometimes if I'm out with my crutches, people are like, what happened? And I'm like, oh God. Sometimes if I'm in a really bad mood, I'll just turn around and say, "Mm, I was born. (laughs) because i was i was born with a genetic disease and that's fine um if it's a kid i tell them i got in a fight with a bear because they like that (laughs) that's cute if it's if it comes from a gen you can tell when it's coming from a genuine place but a lot of the time if i'm out in clubs i don't go clubbing anymore mostly because of (sighs) it people will take your crutch and run off with it really wow because they'll see me kind of yeah yeah it happens all the time um if it like because i I can dance a bit with them and I like to dance who doesn't like to dance when they're at a club it's two am and you're really drunk and people will see me moving around and immediately think, well, I need them then and just take it um I nearly got kicked out of a club once because a bouncer I was in sub club and someone had taken my crutch and was banging it on the roof and the bouncer saw me with the crutch earlier and assumed that it was me doing it, so tried to kick me out and I was like, no, some guy's stolen it. And that happens a lot, which is why I don't really go out much. Yeah. Not that anyone can go out right now. But, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, it's, that's when I get annoyed. Someone coming up to me and being like, hey, is there anything I can get for you? Do you want some help with this suitcase? I'm like, cool, yeah, thanks. And that's it. That's the conversation. It's someone just offering their able-bodied privilege to help me who's trying to lug a suitcase up a flight of stairs with two crutches and a rucksack and i look crazy that's that's a good Mm -hmm. thing it's just being able to go up to people and ask them what can i do to help you you don't offer things you think they might need you wait for the person to tell you and you give them the safe space in order to tell you how can i help you don't assume that i want my case taken away and up the stairs you ask me first it's all you know basic consent practice but you wouldn't believe the amount of times that i've had my suitcase just hoisted <laughs> off and taken away and i'm like oh goodbye right fine you know it's it happens a lot when i'm in london it's very annoying um mostly because i'm probably blocking up the stairs <laughs> it's all about creating a safe enough space a trusting space where i can go up to someone who Who's disabled, and say what can I do for you, and then they can tell me what I can do for them, and that's it. And if they say nothing, I'm good. You don't get offended. You don't have some superiority savior complex that you're trying to be the, good of, the goodest, the bestest person, the best ally ever, and they've shot yeah. you down. No,
1: you're just you just like deal with the oh, rejection. Okay. Like you have Fine. to like you can't just <laughs> like reject the rejection.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think. I think that's the, the core to being a good ally is nobody's psychic. You need to be able to ask and yeah. be told and accept it.
0: But Emily, you're a scientist, you're a planned researcher. That's a big part of who you are. Plants are great as a kid my my grandmother was just like you know she, because she loves gardening she was like stilly this is this type of flower this is this type of thing and this is what we need to do like the, you know they were doing i don't know how it's called in english but you know where you take a little wig uh, uh, uh no wig sti- like a little yeah. what's the part twig uh, twig. twig
1: we're keeping wig in there <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: you, take, you take a little twig and like, you know, you can make from a different tree and you can yeah, put you it transplant. like another oh, tree. Grafting, and... grafting. Oh, yeah. graft Yeah. yeah in, in, in Greek, it's called bollazo. Anyways.
2: <laughs> Naturally.
0: <laughs> During my university, I got really fascinated by it again when I started reading about the, you know, decellularized plant scaffolds that are used for like spinach hearts and all sorts of stuff. And I was like, wow, this is crazy cool. What do you think is the necessary steps to translate a spinach heart into actually something that you can make into like a working? Because like in in theory, that sounds really cool. But like, yeah, like can that actually be applied or like does it have the potential even to be applied in like transport or an implant?
2: So it's cool in theory and it's and you can even do it in practice to the point where you've decellularized. decellularized (laughs) a spinach leaf to the point like where you can perfuse it with a blood-like substance and this is something i always say is that nature repeats successful motifs a plant vein system is really great at taking uh, like flowing sap that's the one and <laughs> um, so naturally nature has repeated this motif in human beings and mammals and all sorts because it's a really useful branch structure so we see it across nature everywhere you even see it in lightning it's all it's really common it's really conserved so this naturally makes a leaf or for some reason spinach in the case the famous case of the beating spinach heart we've all seen so i think it's really cool because what they did was they sort of used enzymatic digestion to get rid of all the cellulose like the tough lignin that we definitely don't have in our bodies and they colonized it with cardiomyocytes as far as i remember which are the little the beating cells that just beat and beat and beat and don't stop yeah then they perfused it with like blood and analogous blood adjacent liquid and i think it was a really cool proof of concept experiment to say look plants have actually got a really useful matrix that we could use for cell engineering or as graphs as well but how translatable is it? It's a really cool video to watch. And I'm sure it probably captured a lot of people's imaginations because it's so mind bendingly cool. I remember like a friend of mine's dad, it was a plastic surgery thing. He got bit on the leg by a cat and it went way deep. And he got it packed with coral because coral was the perfect material to allow his skin to grow over And then it would just naturally dissolve and so people have been using plants in medicine especially structural medicine like that for years and there was another one i think where they used apples as am i remembering this right they tried to use apples as a graft to grow cells Mm -hmm. on yeah yeah that i mean it's all really really cool and it it's also great because there's a lot less ethical implications than if you're doing like animal using animal tissue but yeah, I mean, whilst it's really, really cool, plants are a lot less complicated than hearts. Like, if mm-hmm. I think about how many tubes go in and out of a heart, like, they, the aorta is so big, it has its own blood supply. Like, yeah. a plant has just, like, plants are just one in, one out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm trying to think of, like, the spinach leaf contraption you'd have to build in order to, like, create an aorta of any size. Because, I mean... Even in mice, they're still bloody huge, a lot bigger than a spinach leaf.
0: That was my, my concern as well. When I was reading it, I was like, you know, it's cool. Lou and I, we, we work in a lab that does a lot of implant stuff. We try to recreate or at least help the body regenerate its own tissues. So, like, I was thinking, like, how translatable is it actually to use as heart, you know, not just theoretically an application. Like, could you even could, could you use it for, like, skin graft, maybe? Could you use it for something else? Like, it might have some sort of application, but, like, at least heart tissue-wise, I thought it was quite...
1: I think our biggest... It's a tricky yeah, one. I think our biggest barrier is that we just don't know what induces everything. I mean, if we had, like, the blueprint for what will cause a heart to form or the cells to form a heart shape, it'd be really easy to take a spinach leaf basic scaffolding. And to turn it into it the cells could rearrange it and turn itself it's just the cells are what really letting this down which is the biggest truth i have found darn cells cells
2: (laughs) (laughs) and i mean like it's but what i love about this kind of biomaterials application at least is that that's what really captures the imagination of plant people who might suddenly think plants are really cool a plant scientist didn't do that research what plant scientists do is try and work out how to feed the world, really. Yeah. That's the frustrating thing. Often the coolest research on plants is done by people who aren't plant scientists. <laughs>
1: it's uh, just done by, done by people that are fannying about with something cool. It was really hard to convince. So I did a molecular and cellular science undergraduate, and we had a really big emphasis on plants because Glasgow University does have a really good plant department. And I think it was difficult to convince people <laughs> to go into it. I don't, I don't understand why. Because it wasn't like the lectures weren't interesting. It's just somehow, I think people get put off by photosynthesis. You know, you have to learn photosynthesis and everyone's like, no, thank you. Um, There's a
2: reason I work with roots. Yes. And it might be photosynthesis. (laughs) So I remember down to the day, down to the hour that I suddenly realized how cool plants are. And it's like you said, like I was obsessed with them when I was a kid. Then I grew up. Got all disabled and stuff. Was determined to like do human genetics and become a genetic counselor. And then I was so hungover. It was the first day after Freshers' Week and my second year had finished. I'd still been out on the Sunday. It was a Monday morning, and I was sat in a biochemistry protein kinase lecture. <laughs> and I wanted to die. I hated it. I couldn't. St- I was off. I was always awful at biochemistry. I still am. Michaelis Menton equations, mm -mm, not for me. I sat through that lecture and just thought, absolutely not. And then trotted off to the course advisor's office, still really hungover. I remember that everything inside her office was Marmite themed. And I was like, am I still drunk? Like, okay. And then I was like, right, help, can't do that. Get me out of here. What are my other options? And she was like, oh, you can do plant biology. And I was like, really? Is that the only other module I can take right now? And she was like, yeah sorry. That's it. Swapped you over. Your next lecture's in half an hour. Off you go. So me still hungover, trotting trotting about campus, like, right, okay, guess I'm going to do plants. We had this fantastic lecturer, Professor Tracy Lawson, who I still keep in touch with. And she just laid it out straight. It was like, well, without plants, no food. And that was it. And like my tiny little hungover brain was like, (laughs) what? Whoa. And she was such a fantastic lecturer. But I was just hooked. She told such great stories. It was just fascinating and I couldn't get enough. Suddenly I found myself asking questions and doing extra reading. And I was like, whoa, I've never done this before in my life. I guess I must be really interested by this. I think it was like 2nd of October 2013 was when (laughs) I was like, shit, this is actually really cool. I don't know if you want to introduce what it is that you do. This is where I come unstuck because I actually much prefer to talk about phd students work that came before me her stuff really connects with the public psyche because she did look at somatic memory inheritance through epigenetics and that's really cool so what i do is based off her work i look at the mechanisms that tell genes to be expressed in specific cell types we all have the genome inside of our cells That's cool. That's great. But we can't have the genes that make our hearts tick being expressed in our lungs. Mm -mm, That's bad. An example of this, actually, when this mechanism goes wrong is endometriosis in humans, where we end up with uterine tissue everywhere, all over our bodies. And that's an example of when cell type specific expression goes wrong because your uterus tissue, the stuff that contracts and bleeds and makes you crumpy and grumpy for one week a month, that's supposed to stay in your uterus or go wandering off to your bladder. That's an example of where and why we need cell type specific expression. I look at a type of, so this is my root biologist argument. Uh, the roots are really important because they take in water and nutrients, ions from the soil, lots of cool stuff. I'm trying to find an appropriate teaching tool in my pen pot. So we're just going to have to go with this University of Glasgow pen and that I'm going to try and take apart so there we go in the middle of a plant is like a hollow tube the end of this little bit of a pen and that's called the xylem and the xylem is just a big straw it sucks up water from the soil because the leaves need water and this is called the transpiration pool and it sucks all the water up but the xylem is dead it's literally just a big straw in the middle of a root the xylem's dead so it can't actually control what goes in or out so say Our plant's growing and there's like a toxic waste spill nearby, which is more common than you'd think. And we've got a massive overdose of cadmium in the area. If the xylem was just doing its job by itself, it would load up all the cadmium into the xylem. It would shoot up to all the photosynthetic tissues, to the shoots, and the plant would die because it's bloody full of cadmium. I look at the tissues that control what goes in and out of the xylem. The specific transporters and transcription factors would be like, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. And then they start recovering the cadmium from our little xylem. So all these cells in the roots hold on to this stuff that might kill the plant and they keep it safe. So they're really the decision-making cells of what the plant sees in the photosynthetic tissue and how the plant survives. My research aims to answer sort of two broad questions. One is what genes are expressed in these cells? So what genes are actually controlling how and what is going in and out of this magic straw. And the other one is why are they expressed there? What magic weird mechanism, it's epigenetics, plot twist, Um, is making, <laughs> is making these genes be expressed in these specific tissues. So say we have like one gene that's put there by this epigenetic modification, what happens downstream? If it's a transcription factor, it'll go on and activate or de- or repress all these different other genes, which sets up the tissue-specific transcriptional network, thus making the tissue act like it should. What we need is this other mechanism at the base of this kind of chain that really controls what's on or off at the most basic level. You can kind of broadly, like epigenetics is complicated because it's stuff on top of stuff, repressing stuff, activating stuff. So essentially, I look at histone... So DNA coiled around histones that fits inside our cells because we've got like 30 meters of DNA inside our cells. That's inside of each cell, which is wild. So we need to be able to coil all our DNA up to fit inside a nucleus. And to do that, they coil around little proteins called histones. These histones have these floppy tails and you can stick something to one of these floppy tails that changes how tightly the DNA is wound the more tightly your DNA is wound, the less likely your gene that is wound around that protein is likely to be. So that's a different mechanism on top of your normal gene. Gene goes on, gene goes off.
0: Follow up uh, on the on the gene editing of plants and just generally like <laughs> genetic, genetic engineering of plants. Because I remember even in our bioethics class in biomedic, I did biomedical engineering undergrad. Oh, and cool. at the same time, like, you know, gene editing of plants, but also food security, which is like one of the main things that, um, Plant scientists do, and food security and food sovereignty is all about giving the control of production to the people that actually produce it and also consume the, the food. But because the food industry is such so huge, is so profitable, it's so easy to take advantage of something like this. And like one of the big ethics questions that we were given, like in my undergrad, was actually the case of of monsanto and like them engineering sterile seeds farmers could plant their seeds but then the they couldn't actually reuse it for the next uh, for the next year which in my opinion is quite an unethical thing to do because it can like literally bankrupt uh, a farmer if something does not work out and then obviously gives a lot of all the money to to monsanto who's control who's now in control of that food supply absolutely so I i was just wondering what your opinion is on this
2: I was so close to doing a PhD in soci- in the sociology of food chain supply. So close. Um, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. So get ready. I always start off any discussion to do with people who are anti Monsanto, who are anti and therefore anti GM crops. I tell them you don't have a problem with genetic modification. You have a problem with capitalism, which is a good place to start because they don't have a problem with me doing my research. They have a problem with someone, a massive corporation that was involved in heinous war crimes and all sorts of awful things profiting from what should be a sovereign natural resource, which is food. From a plant scientist perspective, it's you could argue it's important the seeds are sterile. This is the the marketing line that Monsanto uses because we don't know how those seeds would interact in a normal Ecological system that's not a monocultured farmer's field. We don't know what those seeds would do. Would they outcompete with all of the other native wildlife and native plants? Probably because they're so robust. So that's their argument for why we should have sterile seeds. And in a way, I'm almost like, you know what? I agree with that. We've already monocultured the crap out of especially a lot of South American farms, especially like the Pampas in Brazil and Argentina. The problem is. Do we need genetically modified crops to continue to feed people? Yeah, to be honest, yeah, but we don't need them in the way that they are growing them. We don't need herbicide or pest resistant crops or pesticide resistant crops because the way it works right now is that you grow a plant which is resistant to a pesticide or a herbicide. So you can just dump all of these chemicals essentially all over these plants and the plants will still grow. And the pesticide and the pests and the other plants won't. My argument for it is that, yeah, of course we need genetically modified crops, but we just need to make our current crop cultivars more resilient to more environments, which is why I'm really interested in abiotic stress. So I look at salt stress and heavy metal tolerance, just because like, as climate change really literally heats up, our freshwater supply is going to plummet. We're going to need like salt-logged land to be able to grow food on. I don't advocate at all for the Monsanto-based approach, which is to monoculture massive crops just so you can dump chemicals on them. What we need to do is breed and engineer more resilient crops. And this is really interesting as well because then you can start bringing in ancient cultivars of different crops as well. So stuff like the Fertile Crescent that was around in Syria, there used to be like hundreds of different varieties of wheat And now we have, I don't know, like five. Don't quote me on that, but I don't know how many we have, but it's not many. Um, But we have all of these really cool ancient cultivars that we could either A, selectively breed, which takes a really long time, or B, find out that cool gene that does that cool thing and just pop it in the new plant. Done. But then there's the argument that those plants would still need to be sterile because we still don't know what those plants would do outside of their specific growing field. But if we did it like that and made them sort of open source, this is my dream, to be able to generate an open source seed bank. So we have farmers with enough genetic literacy to be like, I've got an arid field near a salt marsh. How can I breed these plants together quickly and efficiently using the tools available to me for free so that I know I can keep feeding my family or my village or the company that I work for locally? That's where it should come down to sort of open source science. And I think that's why that's really important as well. And also
1: kind of why I advocate. We were gonna ask you about what you thought the next green revolution was, but that was it. I think that was a very beautiful answer. Oh yeah, (laughs) that was it. That's it, that's my answer. So I did a course in uh, bioengineering in undergrad, which I thought would be what I'm doing now, but ended up being all about food sources and how you bioengineer plants, as they say. This was led by Professor Domini, and he said that Monsanto is misunderstood. He was arguing against them being innately evil. He argued that like it was how it was the only way that they could actually finance the seeds because they can't charge the actual cost of producing the seeds to a farmer because no farmer could afford that, and the world needs to feed itself. Mm-hmm. So the only way they can do it is on a loan-based system, and the only way you can do a loan-based system is if they can't then propagate. So it's it's tricky. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're a good company,
2: but... It is very tricky. And my counter argument to that would be the majority of... The last time I researched this, which to be honest was a few years ago, was that the majority of crops that Monsanto finance or produce through their loan scheme is to go back into cattle feed, goes right back up the food chain, and they're not actually growing plants typically for human consumption directly. And I can't remember the exact statistics, but it's something like one pound of grain can feed one person, but you need forty pounds of grain to feed a cow. so why not just cut out the cow um and I remember this was one of my arguments for like stopping eating meat in the first place, just <laughs> to bring that back to the vegan conversation earlier <laughs> but um that was that was one of the things that always stuck with me. I was like, well, I understand that for a lot of places and parts in the world meat is a really is a it's a luxury, and as nations like developing nations start to look more and more favorably on the westernized way of living and eating and being this kind of production, for meat consumption chain is really sort of going into overdrive. And it's not something I expect to see changing anytime soon because, you know, meat, having meat every day is a really modern thing. And that amount of meat production consumption all the way down the food chain isn't necessarily sustainable. In the way it could be if you are just if you have a cow for like eight years and then you kill it and eat it and that's it so i think it's kind of gone into hyperdrive in terms of that and monsanto have because they're a business noticed it and capitalized on it because they found a successful business model that really reflects how the world's developing Whilst I wouldn't say they're like, you know, they're not inherently the most evilest or the nastiest, whatever. Like, you can't really necessarily always put ethical signifiers like that onto a company. Yeah, I couldn't necessarily argue against his point, but I would just say we need to look at what specific modes of food consumption they're profiting from and how that's going to negatively impact.
1: So I guess it's a very superficial way of justifying your actions. I mean, you can't argue it based on that superstitious stance.
0: Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and also I feel like there is a difference w- with whether or not you say, oh, this company is bad, but also, like, you know, it, it, the fact that they are not the worst yeah. does not necessarily mean yeah. make them the best either. Like, you know, there is so <laughs> no, many ways definitely. of dealing with this <laughs> in a better way rather than the way they're dealing it, with it's, it. It's uh,
1: the same thing that irritates me during elections, when people say they're not going to vote because it would be the lesser of two evils, and you're like, no, there is a lesser of the two evils, like, just because it's not, I don't know, it's just like lumping everything
2: together. Yeah, I don't know. From my perspective, I realized I had my like moment when I realized, oh no, I should probably vote because like I've always been a super political person but I was like, I don't want to engage with this rubbish. The world would be better off without them which I'm sure probably most of us agree with but then it coincided with me becoming more and more dependent on disability benefits. And I was like, "Huh. huh, I've always been very sure of my political views and I've always been like staunchly very left-wing but then I was like oh wait no no this this goes beyond me you kind of lose that teenage selfishness thinking it's all about you and then realizing there is a lesser of two evils they're both crap but one's less crap
0: (laughs) that's essentially my
2: entire take on politics at the moment
0: i mean when we were talking about monsanto sort of uh, taking advantage of well genetically modified seeds and stuff but like now more and more it's starting to like in a way you know trickle over not not the complete like but trickle over to humans as well like you, you see like more and more genetic like people taking advantage of genetics and genetic research uh, in on a human level as well you know you get companies like ancestry and stuff you know making money out of human gene research and also you know with the promise in this case uh, of you getting you know data about your ancestry or whatever which the, the amount of you know misconceptions around that is huge because they cannot predict to the to the extent that they make you think for your ethnical background no journal yeah. article would accept it by any means like as evidence obviously mm. Because it's statistically completely insignificant. And I'm pretty sure that if you like, for example, you uh, did it twice, you would get different results. Yeah. But um, probably, yeah, Yeah, I don't know, like a lot of people are also very um, concerned that they're actually keeping uh, a data bank of people's actual, you know, genome or, D- or DNA sequence and, and like, you know, selling it to co- other companies without your consent. Do you do you think that? Do you believe that? Or what's your opinion on that?
2: So it's 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 a thing that like a, a friend of mine always said, if the product is free, the product is you. And this especially comes down to like Facebook and apps and stuff like that. But it, what's even worse in the sort of the Ancestry.com cases and stuff is that you're literally paying to become a product down the line. You get a cool thing coming back out of it at some point. You might be like, oh, cool. My grandma is... I don't know, Norwegian or something. Didn't know that. That's cool. But later down the line, your data will be used. Um, I think it was Twenty Three and Me signed a really big contract with Bayer to use oh, yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah. the yeah. genetic, a lot of the. It was Bayer or some someone I, I adjacent. I Google.
0: No, like they they signed a contract with Google. Yeah.
2: They, they did something with someone. <laughs> yeah, I think. <laughs> um, and. Uh, yeah, everyone was up in arms about it, saying I didn't consent to my data being used or sold. And I was like, well, you did when you signed up and you scrolled really, really quickly through all of the terms and conditions of using the service, because that's kind of what happens. You you know, I do it when my laptop updates. I'm not going to read what it's going to tell me to do, you know, what, it, what rights it's changing. And I think it is it's obfuscating the company's ultimate aims and goals, which is to make money from your genetic information. But the problem with genetic sequencing like that is that they're not sequencing your whole genome. They're just sequencing the genes that they need to sequence in order to find out the questions you've the answers to the questions you've asked. They're never gonna like, or at least that's what <laughs> that's what they say they're doing. <laughs> um put my tinfoil hat on there. So <laughs> In a way it's really useful because we're gathering massive amounts of data about a really diverse population. And we're able to, you know, that's the beauty of sequencing. We get the minutia, the answers to the tiniest level we can have. And that's why, that's why I like genetics anyway. It's like the ultimate biological answer to something, but you know, in one ways it's really cool because it means we might be able to have genetically we might have medicine genetically tailored to us because, for example, we could be able to tell that you've got less receptors for the specific drug than the average population. So we could up the amount of drug that you need in order to achieve the desired result. But at the same time, at what cost? What else would they do with your data? How else would it be used? That's something like if you if you do want to get 23andMe done or something like that or Ancestry.com done, you've got to ask yourself those questions like, OK, this is cool. but am i happy for them to have my data about me forever it almost gets into eugenics territory when you start to think about what they'll do with our genetic information will it suddenly be that like i can't get life insurance well we already know i probably couldn't get life insurance but someone else who doesn't know they have a genetic disease they might find out they have a rare heart condition and that data could be immediately sold on to somewhere else because it's publicly available and a life insurance company could take one look at it and be like "Uh uh-uh no and that's it all because you signed up or you made your genome available through a service like this now that's all hearsay but it's not to say it's out of the realm of possibility worst case scenario Mm
1: -hmm.
2: what could happen to our data um there's a really good guardian article by adam rutherford that i'd recommend reading because he probably sums up everything I've tried to say much more eloquently.
0: Yeah, it's it's very it's very fast it's very interesting because I feel like sometimes I just don't trust our system right now with that much power over humans in general. Like you know, talk, going back to the Monsanto example, like you know they they use their power and take advantage of people, and I feel like the system right now is that we have kind of takes advantage of people, and and that's how it works. That's how it functions a lot of times. And it's it's very concerning to me, at least, that this might happen. In, in this case, I'm just yeah. not like mm-hmm. trusting. They definitely it. don't have um, your best
2: interest in mind. No. And I think we have that healthy level of skepticism because we are scientists. It is in our nature, like we said earlier, to look at something and be like, hmm, really? And that's that's who we are as people. And our scientific educations have done nothing but probably amplify that tendency in us. A lot of people don't have the same privilege. A lot of people will blindly take things at good faith because why would they lie? You don't want to believe the bad in these companies that are providing a service. You don't. At least, like, I know, like, if I got my gran a 23andMe test kit, she'd be over the moon. She's really into genealogy. A lot of grandmas and granddads are, and that would be really cool for them. And I know it would make her so happy, but I ethically can't do it. Mm -hmm. And it's annoying because I want that cool service. I want. I want my grandma to be jumping for joy when she finds out a relative somewhere in Canada she didn't know she had, Yeah. but I don't want, you know, I don't want them to do anything else with the data. I just want them to do what they said they'll do with yeah. it openly
1: mm-hmm.
2: without having to become like an expert in legal jargon to get through the terms and conditions where it says, We might sell your data to all these other companies. I'm sure like I could have researched more when I wrote an article about this for the GIF. But I don't I I seem to remember there wasn't they weren't very forthcoming about what exactly Mm. they were looking for. And I remember there was this other company that I kept getting targeted. One of my favorite games is Googling weird stuff and seeing what targeted ads come up or like saying a really weird word near my phone and seeing what adverts. And when I was researching the article I wrote for the gist, I kept getting all of these scam sequencing sites. One that was like, so you had your 23andMe test results, you can just upload the data to us, giving it to a third company or fifth or 60,000 for money. And we'll tell you what this company didn't. And it was for stuff like Breast size. Apparently, there's a gene that will just tell you automatically quantify how big your boobs will be. Aggressiveness, how aggressive you'd be. And, you know, all of this stuff. And it was really well made. It was a really well made website. And it would have suckered me in. Do I not nearly have a PhD in genetics (laughs) who knows that no, there is not one discrete gene that will make my boobs the size they are or will make me short or make me angry? You know, but then I think about my granny, who'd be like, oh, that's really cool. I want to know what gene is making me who I am. And who doesn't want to know yeah. what's making them who they are? It's like a basic fundamental question. So yeah, that was quite shocking to see that there are these kind of predatory companies out there that are willing to take your data on Complete false promise because, as far as I'm aware, there is no such thing yeah. as the tall or the short gene. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so, being able to sell this data has actually helped us, though, because so I mean, we all listen to our murder podcasts here. We've talked about this previously. It did bring in the Golden State Killer. So, I mean, how do you justify that? I mean, how do you how do we juggle that kind of pro and con to this?
2: So, the Golden State Killer was only found because his third cousin used a really shady sequencing site that didn't have mm-hmm. the right data protections on it. So that meant that the police could just like wade into their database and be like, cool, taken that and have it and look at it on an open source platform. That's really good. The ability to do that is good. However, the ability that anyone can just wade through to this slightly less than savory sequencing site and just have it, that's bad. What's good, it's incredible to just have the ability to have that much data, but at the same time, that's one case out of however many. And that could that may well have been solved. I'm not saying it would have been, but it there may have been other avenues through which yeah. it might have eventually been have been solved because they had that DNA sample.
1: And it was a big name case, yeah. I guess I guess the answer isn't always invading people's like uttermost privacy. Like I mean our DNA is private as it gets, I guess that's not always the answer. <laughs>
2: okay well, it's like some people are like oh well i don't mind if the government goes snooping through my phone because i've got nothing to hide and i'm like well my jeans have got nothing to hide either as far as i know yeah. but i don't want people having having them they're mine <laughs> it's fine <laughs> my
0: yeah so before we they're not very we... good
2: but they are mine <laughs>
0: Before we um, cl- well finish this interview, or, uh, yeah, finish off this interview, this podcast, uh, we have two <laughs> two games for you. Uh, we've prepared. I love a game. Okay, so How the,
2: exciting. So
0: the first one, we because you are such a good science communicator, we uh, we read uh, we we picked two titles from plant research journals um, that are relatively obscure, and you would have to okay. quickly. <laughs> I put them in layman's terms. Layman's terms, sorry. Okay. Layman's terms. Okay. So the first one okay. is title. The title is the journal. Well, the journal is the Journal of Plant Physiology, and the title is.
2: Oh, that's actually no. um, that's actually uh, my secondary supervisor's journal. Oh. <laughs> Plant fizz. <laughs> go for it. Go for it. I'm okay. sure I won't know. <laughs> so the
0: title is an endophytic talaromyces omanensis enhances reproductive, physiological and anatomical characteristics of drought stressed tomato.
2: Was that so an endophytic? Yeah. Organism. I don't know. I don't even. It, yeah. wait, what? And could you say the organism name again?
0: Talaromyces <laughs> omanensis.
2: Well, the myces kind of makes it sound like a yeast, doesn't it? Okay, so we'll call it a yeast. It's probably not. We'll go with it. We'll call it a yeast. Say so the presence of a yeast. Mm-hmm. Uh, endo endophytic. That means it. Oh God, epiphytes or endophytes? Right. So we'll go with the presence of a yeast. Uh, wait, no. Grow it. Uh, if a tomato is stressed, having this yeast growing near it or oh. on it will make it grow better. Nice. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean that's I that, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I think. Well, I'm no. I don't know if that's the same in English, but endophytic in Greek. As a Greek word, I'm guessing. But endophytic in Greek is in the in the plant. Is that is that the same in?
2: Yeah, that's because I was thinking about epiphyte, like epiphytic mm-hmm. plants, like orchids that grow up the side of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not yeah, in yeah. stuff. So endo is in, right? yeah yeah so it would be it would be like oh like a yeast like I always phrase things the wrong way around you need to start at the back we're talking about tomatoes so you need to start by talking about a tomato so people can center their brains on the fact we're talking about a tomato so drought stress tomatoes grow better with a yeast growing alongside them
0: that's pretty neat that's great (laughs) yeah it is it's a fungus it's a a teleromyces is a fungus
2: oh cool
0: But I mean, I yeah, I accept these I'm pretty damn impressed by like, that. Uh, close I mean, enough. Close enough.
2: Close enough. It's the myces. The myces got me. Yeah. Got me thinking. We're in. I'm thinking like saccharomyces. I don't know anything about mushrooms. I had like. I had like three lectures on them with a mycologist once and I was like oh cool mushrooms are huge underground sweet and that was it
0: (laughs) yeah the biggest organism or something in the world like a mushroom
2: oh yeah the quaking aspen I mean probably that's true but it's really hard to quantify like mycelium isn't it because it's kind of transient Mm
0: -hmm. yeah you go for the second one um Lou
1: uh and the title is Hexose transporter, PS one mediated sugar uptake is required for pathogenicity of wheat stripe crust.
2: So in order for this, I think it's a fungus, in order for this fungus to um, function as a fungus, it needs this sugar transporter, or when I say this transporter, whatever the name of it is, or like, yeah, for this fungus to successfully infect plants, it yeah, requires
1: that's it. A that's like sugar beautiful. transporter. <laughs>
0: Great, that's great. I no. can't believe how uh, you're, well you're, you're doing. doing. Really well. <laughs> you're doing really well, beautiful. <laughs> All right, and well, next, the second game uh, is <laughs> No one everybody's has told us that this game. is their favorite game. <laughs> no, we decided it's everybody's Absolutely. favorite
2: game. Oh, it's my favorite now. Oh, finally! Well, I'll it's go on the record now and tell you it, but it's, it's my beauty. favorite
0: game. Guess the impact factor.
1: <gasps> someone else who plays it. So uh, we're yes, read our <laughs> I always get these wrong. Okay.
0: You have to guess the impact factor.
1: I'm going to start off with the first one. We're going to go entirely left field and give you something that you're not going to know. And that is the international journey. Oh sorry, journey. International journal. <laughs> Excellent. I'm going to read it out as I would have incorrectly. The international <laughs> journey of dairy technology. Amazing. Right? I
2: would love to go on an international yeah. journey with How some dairy technology. We'd see so many sites. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with a solid like 2.1 i'm getting Um, decimals in there fortunately there's not as many
1: people (laughs) referencing this Uh, so it's a 0.31
2: wow i really don't (laughs) even necessarily understand how impact factors work we had really we had to look it up um i imagine that's quite a niche field isn't it dairy technology
1: it can indicate nicheness and it can also indicate a lack of trust of other academics you know like if anyone can get into a journal you're probably not going to reference their papers anyone can get into the international journal of Literary it's very I'm true <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's <is> niche
0: <laughs> so the second journal is journal of negative results in biomedicine
2: my favorite imaginary journal exists oh god i'm going to say it's super obscure and give it like a 0.5 cuz it it doesn't exist to be
1: cited it doesn't I'm exist so to glad. be cited. It you exists gonna get to just let you know. It's 0.377 <laughs> and that's close enough for me. 0.5 0. Basically round it up. That's 0.5. <laughs>
0: that's close, yeah.
1: Ooh, okay, I got to pick one.
0: Okay, uh, I'm going to
1: give one. you the highest impact factor in a plant specific journal that I found. And that is the Annual Annual Review of Plant Biology.
2: Mm, I'm thinking about what Nature Plants is. Well, nature, yeah i'm thinking about it's nature. maybe plants, not as high as that but it's that's okay but i'm thinking about i'm thinking about where nature plants is and then i'm oh. gonna take it down a couple of notches and give it like
1: a oh no it's higher than that sorry 11.591 mm. this journal has got it going on whoa <laughs> i like that the plant scientist
2: has you go random journal that. i'm sure she'll know this one <laughs> no i'm sure i'm sure i do but i'm so like i I need to see logos to remember what on earth things are. Like, I'm a very visual person.
0: The third journal is uh, the Mm. Journal of Weed Research.
2: Do we mean weed like cannabis or weeds like dandelions and stuff?
0: I think it is dandelions and stuff, but let's just assume it's weed cannabis.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, now, yeah, I mean, I imagine it gets a lot of Google hits because people like, I'm going to look up. Cannabis research and it comes up with weed and people are like cool and then they <laughs> click on it and it's all about dandelions and stinging nettles and they're like oh no I've been duped so I'm gonna go you'll for get like, that. like a one maybe oh, that's you'll get the point cool. it's
0: a one point for two like seven that's great
2: oh my gosh <laughs> this is a really fun game final one
1: oh
0: final Pomp one is. this is to equal the leader this is to equal the leader
1: ooh. This is exciting. Oh oh oh! Okay okay.
0: Go for it. Lou. Okay,
1: since we've talked about it, since we've touched on it, I'm gonna ask you about fungal diversity. Ooh, because I mean, diversity implies it's
2: a lot of phylogenetics mm. and stuff, which is useful. But <laughs> there's a but.
1: I'm gonna give it like like a. I might I might oh, go for but like. A, there can't a be two, that many fungal many uh, fungal journals, which ups that singular journals. Oh god.
2: Yeah, that's true. Okay, fuck it. Like (laughs) (laughs) 0.2. I don't know. Let's take it down 10 notches. (laughs)
1: 7.5. So high. So high. (laughs) Right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's really
2: cool, though. Hats off to the fungal diversity, guys, because I never would have seen that coming. Like, big up all the mycologists, because, like, I don't know.
0: (laughs) You were so close. That's that's. So close. Yeah, that was great. Wow.
2: Incredible. Maybe I I thoroughly (laughs) maintain that everyone has one mundane superpower. Maybe I I finally found my mundane superpower.
0: superpower. (laughs) Well, thank you, Emily, so much for being with us today. That was a lot of fun.
2: This is the most human contact I've had in weeks. I've had a great (laughs) time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, us too. Thank you so much for being here. And we would also like to thank uh, our wonderful executive producer, Claire, who is off to feed her child.
1: (laughs) That's such a weird way to say it. (laughs) Uh, Lockdown life. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, Emily, if people wanted to find out more about you, more about your work and everything else, where can they find you?
2: The easiest place to find me is probably, at the moment, Instagram. So that's e. May Armstrong on Instagram. Or, confusingly, on Twitter, Emily X, like the letter X, Armstrong. Uh, or my website, which is just emilymayarmstrong.com. Um... And if you go to emilymayarmstrong.com, you can find all sorts of pictures and videos and words and links <laughs> to my social media, should you have forgotten the other handles. <laughs> oh, no, it's great. No, more. <laughs> I've had so much fun.
0: The music for this podcast was provided by Jaren Falaidi. You can find more of his work at operatet.com. That's o p r e t. Et, you can find us on our per- on Instagram at that Schofield girl and still on Greece. And with that, I would like to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you're staying safe and having a wonderful day.